Well, we are continuing our study through Galatians today, and so we're going to start in Galatians chapter 4, verse 1, and today we'll be going through verses 1 through 7. Um, and I'll read the whole passage to start. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Becoming a Christian is supposed to be the most life-altering thing that could happen to us. There's supposed to be massive change in the way that we think, in the way we feel, the way that we act, because we're Christians. But if, if being a Christian is just signing up for a church, then we can expect very little change. We, we can't expect much to change in our lives. We can't much to expect much to change in our hearts because just signing up for a church isn't what makes us a Christian. But there's a central reality that should make all the difference in the world for us. That when we become Christians, we're not just signing up for a religion, but we are adopted as sons and daughters of God. And this is something that God does for us. And when he does that work, there's also a work that he does in us that changes us. And so in these seven verses today, we'll just unpack that reality. These first three verses are, uh, cover a subject that we kind of covered in previous weeks. And again, starting in verse one, he says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And so Paul's continuing there to unpack a little bit of what the Old Testament ceremonial law was for. In the previous chapter, he said that it was a schoolmaster or it was a guardian in chapter 3, verse 24. And here he says that that law was a guardian and a manager. It was like a supervisor. So historically, when, when Israel was young, it needed the supervision of that ceremonial law to train it and to train the world by extension in, in what's right and wrong and pleasing and displeasing to God. And it had all of the ceremonies instituted to teach it what Christ would come to do. All the blood was spilled from the sacrifices to, to teach Israel about the blood of Christ that would be spilled when he came. But then when enough time had passed, God intervened and he said, all right, you've graduated from that school. And so now it's time for me to, to get you out of there. And in verse four, he says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So Jesus came at just the right time to redeem those who were under the law, to take them out of school, and to grant us full status as sons and daughters of God. And so the analogy that he's making here, it's almost like we were the, the children of a wealthy father, that we were in the same boarding school as everybody else, and then once we graduated, we got out of that school, and now we live the full reality of being heirs and being children of God. And as Christians, let's not get apathetic about that reality. That Jesus made us sons and daughters of God through his work on the cross. And sometimes that doesn't mean that much to us. It doesn't mean much to us because we just kind of think, well, everybody has that status. Isn't everybody a child of God? 
But in scripture, everybody's his creation. Everybody's loved by him. Everybody's made in his image. Everybody possesses dignity and worth, regardless of who they are, regardless of what they believe, regardless if they even acknowledge God. But this status as sons and daughters sets the redeemed apart. This is a unique status that we have as Christians. And so if we think that this is true for everybody, it might seem like it's no big deal. Or sometimes it'll seem like it's no big deal because we're so familiar with it. We're so familiar with this idea of calling God our father. But, but when Jesus came and taught this, this was a striking new reality. When Jesus gave us the Lord's prayer and he was teaching us to pray in Matthew 6, 9, he said, pray then like this, our father in heaven. He says, when you pray, call God your father. And I know we've been doing that for a long time. We've been praying to our father for a long time. So it doesn't strike us as odd at all. But in Jesus' day, it would have been very rare for somebody to ever address God as father. They would use the big titles. They would use the Lord of the universe, mighty God, holy and exalted, like the, the he-man type titles for God. And, and those are good titles that, that say a lot of true things. But Jesus comes and calls, calls him father. And he tells us to do the same thing. In Judaism, there were tons of titles that you could use to refer to God. There were tons of ways he could be addressed in prayer, but father wasn't one of them. In fact, only 14 times in the Old Testament is God called the father. And every time it's referring to him as a father of the nation, never in like this personal sense. But Jesus says, no, when you pray, pray to your father personally. This also sets Christianity apart from world religions. In Islam, for example, there are 99 different names used for Allah, but Father isn't one of them. But Jesus, throughout his life, 60 times in Scripture, he calls him Father. That's one thing for Jesus. We know that Jesus is the Son of God with a capital S, but he tells us, his followers, to address God in the same way. When we become Christians, God becomes our Father. This means that when we're praying, we know that we're coming to, to someone who's more like a loving dad than, than anything else. He's both transcendent and that he is the father in heaven, but also he's near and he's approachable. He's high and holy, but also meek and lowly. He's a father, which, which says something about his love for us. In Psalm 103, 13, it says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. So this says that at the heart of his fatherhood is compassion. And that, that's a word that means the deep stirring up of your spirit for someone. It's the kind of love that compels you to act on behalf of someone else. It's often used of, of mothers and the kind of care that they have for nursing babies. In Isaiah 49, 15, it says, Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. So the kind of care and concern that the father has for us is like the kind of care and concern that a mother might have for her nursing babies. It's that kind of protection. It's that kind of diligent, constant concern. It's a care for someone else that goes to the root of who you are. It, it causes you to act. I remember driving home from the hospital when, when Lydia, our oldest, was born, which... 
feels like it was yesterday, but I just picked her up from college for break on, on Friday. And, and while we were going to the hospital, it was kind of a fun drive. Like I, I was being fairly reckless because I had a pass. Like, you know, this is your chance. You can run the lights, you can speed all the way there, tons of fun. And then, then there's the ride home. And I remember double checking that car seat, driving home slowly, feeling like I should have flashers on the whole time. If cars are near me, it's like, get away. I've got cargo here. Like, stay back. I've got this new compassion. I'm caring for this girl. It's almost built into the biology of a parent to care for a new baby to the point where you would do anything necessary for the good of your kid. And Jesus argues from from the lesser to the greater. He says that if an imperfect father can feel that way, and can love our children like that, how much more can we expect God to love and care for us? Listen to what he says in Luke 11, verse 9. He says, And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, instead of a fish, give him a serpent. Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So if we have this sense of love and care and responsibility for our kids, how much more does God have that? God has this love that's shown in his taking responsibility for us. He's not a disinterested father. He's not a father who's annoyed by our presence. He's not a father who's just always fed up with us. He's not a father who's just sort of plopped on the couch and doesn't want us to disturb him. He's a father with active compassion. Compassion that compels him to take responsibility for us. And you see this most clearly in the gospel. I mean, there we are languishing in our sin. We had rebelled, we were ruining ourselves. So God the Father acted. He sent forth his son in Galatians 4.4, and it's, it's like the language of mission. It's like he sent out an army to bring us back, that Jesus Christ came and he went to the cross, he died, he was buried, and he rose again so that we could be drawn to the Father because he had compassion for us. So God's our Father, and, and not only is, our, is he our Father, but he's our adopted Father. And in the Roman Empire, adoption was practiced pretty regularly. If, if a man didn't have a son, rather than writing a will to leave everything to somebody else, he would often adopt a son. He, he would choose someone else, sometimes a teenager, sometimes an adult, or even stories of people adopting people that were older than them. And, and when someone was adopted, that new father would pay his debts and would make him his legal son and make him the heir. And now a father could disown his, his natural-born son for, for being a punk or something, but, but not an adopted son. Once, once a son was adopted, that was a permanent thing. So by saying that God's our, our adopted father, it's saying that God has made us heirs. He's promised us that inheritance. He's unspeakably good to us because he chose us, and the whole thing is irreversible. He's our father. Now, I think sometimes we struggle to believe this because it can feel like it's just way too good to be true. Because we know that, that being a son or daughter, that's never an earned status. 
My kids didn't work their way to being my, my son and daughters. They didn't earn that. They didn't achieve that. There was nothing that they did to, to get that. That's a status that was granted to them. And we, we can hear that, and that can almost seem like it's the wrong metaphor for our relationship with God if we have a religious mindset. Because we tend to think God is someone we have to work for. That I have to work my way to, way to God. Calling him father just doesn't fit because that feels like it's a status that's just granted to me. I must have to earn something. Where we think this can't be true if I've failed. If I've failed, if I haven't acted like a good son or daughter, then, then definitely I can't keep calling myself a son or daughter of God. Jesus actually made this part of the dialogue that was going on in the, the head of the prodigal son. Remember the story, the prodigal didn't care about his father. He thought it would be better if his father were just dead. And so he treated his father like he was dead. He said, give me the inheritance right now. And his father, who was gracious and generous, gives him his portion of the inheritance while he's still alive. A total insult to his father, but his father blesses him anyway. And he goes out and he squanders it. He wastes it all. He ruins his life. And then when he's got nothing, he's destitute. He, he's looking at the food that the pigs are eating. And he says, that looks pretty good. And he realizes, I'm a Danulo. So he decides that he's going to go home. And then this is his plan. In Luke 15, verse 18, he says, I'll arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he thought that his sonship was tied up with his worthiness. His first reaction when he sinned was to think, I'm not worthy to be a son anymore. There's no way I could ever relate to my, my dad as his son anymore. Now I want to be his employee or his slave. If I'm lucky, when I go back to him, he'll let me have that status. But there's no way that, that I could ever call myself his son now. And this is us sometimes. Where we recognize we sinned, we think that if, if God will have us back, it's going to be as his employees. Give me some religious tasks to do so I can pay off my debt to you. Give me some work to do so that I can have some relationship with you. I have to be good to earn your love. We think that that's what our, our relationship with God should look like. But look how it goes. In, in Luke 15, verse 20, it says, And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. There it is again, he's moved to action. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. So notice how the failures and sins don't change sonship. Sons and daughters are always sons and daughters. The sinning son says, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me a slave. And the father says, heck no, we are having a party for you. You're my son. So if God's your father, that's an unchangeable status. Which means that if you've wandered, you can repent, you can run back to him, and you can expect, because he's gracious and compassionate, and because his son shed his blood, you can expect a welcome. You can expect him to receive you. 
Now, there are two big mistakes we can make when it comes to the fatherhood of God in our lives that can keep that reality from changing us. And one is this, that we, we kind of think that the whole thing depends on us, that we, we have to keep up performance so that he stays our father, or we'll believe that he's our father only when we feel like it's true or we're experiencing something emotionally. But then the other error is that we don't experience the, the inner work of God in us and we're just kind of okay with that. So first, let's eat away at the error that says that it's only true that he's our father if we feel that way. Verse four again, it says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So Paul says this is true. We've received adoption as sons and it's not because we earned it. Notice it doesn't say when the fullness of time had come, God gave us some steps to follow. We followed those steps and God said, all right, you've achieved, you're my son now. It says when the fullness of time had come, he sent his son. He sent his son on a mission. Jesus accomplished everything he came to do. And because he accomplished that, we've received adoption as sons and daughters of God. Jesus came on, on this mission. And, and if we have believed in him and what he's done, then that means that our debt has been paid. We've been adopted. This is true permanently. It's true independent of our performance. It's true whether we feel it right now or not. Because this was all accomplished for us. It was accomplished outside of us. We didn't accomplish it. He did. We have to be careful. That sometimes I think we don't believe in any spiritual reality that's going on outside of our own hearts and minds. But to be a Christian, we have to believe that God exists, that he exists outside of us, that he really did these things. And whether I feel like he's my father or not doesn't determine reality. It's just so important for us to, to believe in the objective reality of God outside of us, that he's not the same thing as my feelings. And when I do premarital counseling for couples, one of the central realities that I always try to drive home to couples is that from the moment you are married, from the wedding day on, you can live with confidence that God joined you together. Mark 10, 9 says, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And, and before the wedding day, you ask all the questions, and you should. Is this person a Christian? Do, do we have the same views of marriage and life and kids? Uh, do we have the same views of money? Do we have similar plans and dreams and goals? Do we agree on how we're going to relate to one another? All of those questions have to be asked. Are we both Bills fans? Because we are about to say, <laughs> we're going to say for better or for worse. There's going to be a lot of for worse if, we're, if we are. Like, we're going to have to comfort one another and Remind one another, 44 seconds, it's enough time for them to choke. It could happen. It's, <laughs> are we in this thing together? And you ask all those questions before marriage, you, you assess the whole thing soberly, but then the wedding day comes. And you say, I do. And from then on, you can live with absolute confidence that something happened outside of you, that that's the day when God spoke and said, this is the one for you. What happens fairly often is, is couples will be tempted after they're already married to start asking, you know, is this the right person for me? But believing that, that marriage is God's work means that if you're married, you can be absolutely confident that God joined you together. You don't only get married because you decided to, you get married because God did it. God joined you together. He speaks on your wedding day, and that's the day when he spoke and said, this is the one for you. 
And you can go back and you can second guess all the decisions you made all day long. You can say, ah, oh, you know, we only got married because we were pressured into it. We were kind of in a bad state in our, in our walks with God at the time. We were young, we rushed it. And all of those things might be true, but God joined you together. Marriage wasn't just a decision the two of you made, God did it. And, and to exit it outside of the parameters that God established is to fight against what he did. He joined you and that was a decision made by God outside of you. And, and the point that I'm trying to make here is that our feelings don't determine the reality about God and what he's done. You can feel like you've married the wrong one and be totally wrong because God joined you together. And you can also feel like God is not your father because you're not experiencing something right now or because you feel like your sin has made you no longer worthy to be called his son or daughter. But God doesn't change. His word stands. And you were adopted as a, as a child of God because of the work that Jesus did. So if you're a Christian, you are irrevocably and permanently a beloved child of God because of the work of Jesus that happened outside of you. So don't make the mistake of believing that's only true if I feel it or if I've earned it. Because the whole thing, verses four and five here, it's all grounded in the work that Jesus did, not in your work. But then there's another mistake we can make. And that I think is to disregard the active work of God in our hearts that we do experience. And I think this will be a little bit of a correction for our church because I, I know that as I, I look at the nature of the relationship with God that the Christians have in our time and place, it seems to me that a big error, at least in, in the Christian community that I know around here, is to be too feelings driven. And so we feel God's presence in the form of goosebumps when we're singing around the campfire at summer camp. And in that moment, we affirm how good he is. We affirm that he's really close. He's really near to us. But then we go home. We go back to work and school and the drudgery and sometimes we encounter real evil in the world and crises and tragedies and the goosebumps are gone. Sometimes God feels far. And it's not uncommon for someone in those moments to say, well, maybe I was wrong. Maybe God doesn't exist because the feelings aren't there. Or, or to give up following him with zeal if the feelings aren't driving us. Or sometimes we won't respond to his clear will as expressed in the written Bible because we think his will is known best and ultimately in our feelings. And so in response to that, I think we've tried to drive home the reality that feelings don't determine reality. That, that just because God feels far doesn't mean that he is. Just because you don't feel forgiven doesn't mean that you're not. Just because you don't feel excited doesn't mean that you have an excuse for, for disobedience to God. And so that this big error is that we can live with a very flaky, very weightless, very contentless faith where we just sort of believe in believe and we don't believe in the solid, weighty reality and reliability of Jesus. So, so we try to drive home the message that you're justified, you're declared just by God, not because of your feelings, but as you put your faith in what Jesus has done for you. And that's all true. And then the pendulum can swing too far where we start to think that there isn't supposed to be any kind of daily relationship with God at all. There isn't supposed to be a personal experience, we can think. We think there's not supposed to be like the real and vital walk with him. We can almost try to start to convince ourselves, well, that doesn't matter. But notice what this passage does. It says that we're adopted because of what Jesus accomplished for us in history. 
And when he accomplishes that, then as the sons and daughters of God, we have the Holy Spirit of God living within us and driving a real experience with God. Look at verse 6. So he's already said, Jesus accomplished this. This is what made you sons. Verse 6, he says, and because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So the sons and daughters of God have the spirit of God within us, and through us, he cries, Abba. And Abba was an Aramaic word for father that was personal and intimate. You can almost hear that it was probably one of the first words that a lot of little babies said as they they cried for their dad and reached up their arms. A baby can say Abba. It's saying here that we have this, this close and intimate relationship with God as father where God does dwell with us. Where we should experience a closeness with him because his spirit is in us. And Jesus promised this in John 14, 16. He says, I will ask the Father and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. So it says here that Jesus is going to ascend back to his father, but God's closeness with his people is not going to be diminished at all when Jesus is in heaven because the spirit will be with us. And so often we think, well, I I can't ever feel close to God because I just, I would have to see Jesus. If I could just get in a time machine, go back, hang out with Jesus, that would build my faith a ton. I'd be able to see the miracles. I'd be able to talk to the man himself. I'd be able to get clarification on all those hard things that Jesus said. And I'd be able to just be with him. It would be so great for me to have that kind of closeness. Well, according to Jesus, we have the same capability to build our faith with the the spirit that's within us now as we would if we could go back in time and, and hang out with Jesus on the boat on the Sea of Galilee. In fact, he's so active with us that Jesus will say this in John 16, 7. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So the Spirit's presence with us is actually an advantage that we have over what the disciples had when they were hanging out with Jesus with his physical presence there. An advantage. We have it better. That's how real God's presence is with us. It's how real the Holy Spirit is, and that's how rich our experience with him can be. So if you've been adopted as a son or daughter of God because you've believed in Jesus who accomplished that for you, you can know that the Holy Spirit is present with you. It's not just that God's thoughts are with you. It's not just that someday in the future you'll be with God. It's that he's with you now if you're a follower of Jesus. This is a promise to everybody who believes with no other conditions. There aren't some Christians who have the Holy Spirit and then others who don't. He's with you forever. And Jesus wants us to experience this relationship with God that's intimate and personal, where you relate to him as a child relates to the father first and foremost, not as an employee relates to a boss. And where the spirits at work within us working to increase the warmth and intimacy of our relationship with God. 
Okay, but what's that like? How do, we, how do we experience that? How do we experience the work of the Holy Spirit within us? Well, there are a lot of things that the Spirit does. I'd recommend reading John 14 through 16 to see some of the things that Jesus promises as far as the ministries that the Holy Spirit carries out in our lives. But the one that's mentioned in Galatians is that he prays to Abba, he prays to the Father through us. So if we want to experience that, that real daily relationship with God, we can start there crying out to God like we're his children. This vital, personal, daily relationship with God is experienced the most as we pray to God as a loving father. Sometimes we think that the Holy Spirit is someone that we gotta like conjure up and he only does the big and huge and spectacular things. But Paul says the Spirit's in your heart crying out to Abba Father. That's the, that's the work that you should sense him doing as a son or daughter of God. And so if you want to experience it, pray. Cry out to God like, like you're his child. Because if we've believed we're his children because of what Jesus did for us. We have the spirit within us, so we're invited in. We're invited closer. We're invited into relationship. We're invited to not only live with the knowledge that God is our father, but to call him our father as well. In a minute here, we'll take the Lord's Supper as Christians to commemorate what Jesus did for us to make us the sons and daughters of God. When we take the bread, we're, we're saying that we believe that Jesus was crucified for us. When we take the cup, we're saying that we believe that his blood was spilled for us, that we believe that this is objective reality. Jesus actually did this in history. He did this for all of us. And the requirements for taking the Lord's Supper are not that we feel something, Sometimes we'll feel it and sometimes we won't. But the requirement for taking the supper is that we believe. In taking this, we're saying that we're Christians, which means that we've believed the truths of the gospel. We believe that our sin separates us from God and so we, we confess and, and we renounce it. We should never take this supper clinging to sin or bent on sin. We're actually warned against that in scripture. But also, we don't take it because we're perfect. In taking this supper, we're saying that, that Jesus came on a mission to, to make us his sons and daughters by dying for us. And so we take the bread and say, Jesus died. We drink the cup and we say his blood was spilled. He paid the price for us so that we could draw near to God. That we're invited closer. We're invited in because he gave himself for us. And so, so we take this supper soberly, knowing that we've sinned and Jesus had to be torn for us but also we take it rejoicing because of what he's done for us. We take it soberly because the spirit's working in our hearts to convict us, and that matters. We have to respond to that. We have to repent. We should all only take this if we're Christians and if we've confessed our known sin, but we also take it rejoicing because it's not up to us to fix it because we're not God's employees. We're not his slaves anymore. We're his sons and daughters.